listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. This is A Brighter Horizon, the Farm Grad Wishlist Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Brighter Horizons Podcast on behalf of the Farm Grad Wishlist, where we shine light and amplify and awaken previously silenced voices to create a more diverse tomorrow. As always, I'm Judah Brown, critical care pharmacist and Farm Grad Wishlist advisory team member, and I'll be your host today. With residency recruitment in full swing, what not a more ideal time to discuss the ideals of diversity, equity, and inclusion in pharmacy training and selection. I'm honored and privileged to be sharing this episode with a powerhouse collaborative effort between our PGWL leadership team and the fantastic Dr. Jimmy Pruitt, emergency medicine pharmacist and founder of Farm So Hard, Pharmacy Friday Pearls, Pharmacy and Acute Care University, and many more fabulous endeavors to advocate for pharmacists all over. Dr. Pruitt has been creating access to equitable education and faux med materials through his presence within and outside of the profession, paving a way for future pharmacists to excel, succeed, and continue to break ground. Also joining us today, we have PGWL leadership, Dr. Abdul Mutagabir, infectious diseases researcher and clinician who has been such a strong voice continually fighting for change. Also, Dr. Caroline Coe, critical care pharmacist and PGY2 residency program director who has been advising and leading efforts to promote our social justice movement. Dr. Kevin Astle, ambulatory care HIV pharmacist and clinical professor who has supported the creation and unique funding efforts and scholarships for PGWL. And last but not least, Dr. Jason Mordino, clinical coordinator for education and critical care pharmacist with a passion driving many of the inner workings of PGWL. With so many great voices and advocates on today's episode, let's dive right in. So why don't we start and just explain where you are right now, what you're currently doing, um, how you got there, where you trained, and what your current interaction is with with trainees at your institution. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to go first? Perfect. So, hey, guys, I'm Jim Pruitt. I'm an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I did my pharmacy school at Presbyterian College down in Clinton, South Carolina, and for those who's there, they, they don't pronounce the T, they call it Clinton. And I went on to Advent Health Orlando to do my PGY1. And then I went to the phenomenal PGY2 program at Grady in downtown Atlanta to pursue emergency medicine. And then I got to MUSC and really been enjoying it there. And I've been fortunate to learn so much from people like everyone's on this call about how to interact with my residents and give them a voice. So I think the the way that I get to interact with them is pretty unique because of our on-call program. I get to all of them come to the emergency department in response to traumas. And I like to have my little mini sessions with them there. So uh, super excited to you know continue to talk more about this later on. But that's like my unique way of getting to engage with with our learners definitely unique at that um and it's so great that you're supporting such a, a movement to, to give that voice and that's really our purpose uh so now let's talk more about um some of our pharmacy uh farm grad wishlist leadership team that we have on the call today um so why don't we start with dr karen and co thanks Duda. 
Um, so I am an emergency medicine pharmacist as well, um, but I also practice in the ICU and mostly for the past year or so I've been in the surgical and trauma ICU and I am at the County of Santa Clara Health System in San Jose, California. And um, in my role, I'm also the PGY2 Critical Care Residency Program Director. So that is part of the way that I interact with our learners at our site. Um, but I'm also pretty involved in our PGY1 program. I help, um, I help with the teaching certificate program and we give a lot of seminars on precepting and feedback and um, just a lot of skills for, for the PGY1s as they take on precepting for the first time. Um, my training, I did my pharmacy school at UCSF. Um, I went to my PGY1 residency at the San Francisco VA, and that was just an amazing experience. I chose the, the program because of the supportive preceptors, and my mentor, uh, Dr. Sharia Bourdais, is just a fabulous critical care pharmacist, and I just thought she knew everything. Uh, so that basically led me to pursue a PGY2 in critical care. And that was at Stanford Hospital, where I got to see just a breadth of critical care knowledge at a tertiary academic medical center um, and developed my specialty experience. So that's a little bit about me. Great. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Austin. Hi, I'm an assistant clinical professor with Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy on our Mobile Satellite Campus. My practice site is with uh, University of South Alabama Family Medicine Clinic. Um, and so in this clinic, I'm able to serve as the preceptor for our PGY-1 residency, as well as our PGY-2 ambulatory care residency. I got to Auburn by way of University of Florida College of Pharmacy, um, where I graduated from pharmacy school, and then went up to um, Auburn University Pharmacy Health Services for my PGY-1 residency, which was focused in ambulatory care. Um, so this program, I was really drawn to it due, um, from the different clinical aspects and um, teaching opportunities, and um, really to learn how to grow to be um, and academic pharmacy now. So thank you for having me today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, the illustrious Dr. Jam. Hi everyone. So um, Dr. Jacinda Abdul-Mutakabir, Dr. Jam uh, for, for ease. So um, I'm not an emergency medicine pharmacist, um, unfortunately. So I am uh, infectious diseases trained. I trained uh, with Mike Ryback. Um, at Wayne State University and my fellowship anyway, where um, I had the, I guess, most uh, direct experience with learning how to mentor and things of that sort. I'm in vitro based. I did my uh, PGY1 at the Howard University Hospital and then pharmacy school at um, the University of St. Joseph in Hartford, Connecticut. It's an accelerated three-year pharmacy program. And um, I guess in terms of where I am currently, I'm currently an assistant professor of both pharmacy and medicine at uh, Loma Linda University in Loma Linda, California. I guess when we think about mentorship or when I think about what it is that I provide to the profession in that way, I'm an educator. So I have a direct relationship with mentorship and um, what that looks like for our uh, students that we have. But me being um, a newer clinician, um, I graduated in 2017, but really being a newer educator, I've really become invested in um, amplifying the voices of junior faculty, um, but also the voices of um, who it is that'll be a, the future of pharmacy. So my students and making sure that I do whatever it is that I can to ensure that um, they have the best 
that pharmacy has to offer. So um, I've just dedicated myself to that, to amplifying inequities that exist within the um, within the profession. And I'm so excited to not only be able to talk about that here, but to be able to uh, join forces with the wonderful pharmacists of the Farm Grad Wishlist and then Farm So Hard with Jimmy and to um, invest ourselves in the sponsorship effort that is very important to pushing our uh, profession forward. I said it better. And last but not least, Dr. Jason Mordino. Uh, thanks, Judah. Thank you, um, everyone, for having me uh, here today. It's uh, nice to meet y'all. I'm uh, Jason Mordino. I'm the clinical coordinator for pharmacist education at Boston Medical Center. I'm also the PGOM program director. I originally uh, am from the New England area. So unlike y'all in the South and uh, West, I'm, I'm from the Connecticut area, moved to Boston to do my training at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Uh, my PGY-1 was actually at Beth Israel Deaconess uh, Medical Center here in Boston. I um, worked there as an intern for many years before I did my residency training, and it was kind of like a family. Um, I moved over uh, across the, the street to Boston Medical Center, uh, where I did my PGY-2 in critical care. So I got to spend some time in the ED. So Jimmy and, and Caroline, I know kind of how you guys feel. Jam, I wish you could join us. You know, critical care is a fun group. I left for a few years to work in uh, North Carolina and, and decided to come back to the Boston area. And ever since I've been in trauma critical care uh, as my primary role uh, until about a year or so ago, I transitioned towards mostly management. And uh, with that job, I oversee um, all of our residency programs, but I'm also the director for our PGY-1 program. So I provide a lot of um, direct mentorship through, uh, you know, resident advocacy, through um, spending time with our residents here on site, but also kind of getting uh, the word out about BMC and had the wonderful opportunity to join Farm Grad Wishlist last year. And uh, it's been a pleasure to spend time with y'all. Thank you for that. And it was, it was an honor to get to speak with each and every one of you today and hear your, your unique perspectives on such an important topic. Um, so moving forward and really getting into the meat of why we're here, um, I think diversity, equity, and inclusion are, you know, buzzwords or have been buzzwords throughout the past couple of years. Um, but really, what does, what do you guys think that that means to you and in terms of clinical pharmacy practice? Why don't we start with you, Jason? Yeah, thanks, Judah. I'll, I'll be frank and honest. I'm not an expert uh, in this by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it is an area that I uh, continue to learn and grow. And um, for me, uh, uh, what I think about when I think about diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly in like clinical pharmacy practice and residency training, you know, a, a lot of individuals that go through clinical pharmacy end up uh, being academicians. They end up mentoring and supporting a ton of students. They do research and the pipeline to get individuals to that position uh, is through residency. So I, I see residency as kind of like a choke point in that pipeline for uh, making sure that we have representation for high paying jobs and education for uh, minorities in uh, that space. And so I think I see residency in particular as uh, a way for us to to strive for um, population parity uh, at a minimum um, so that minorities are in clinical pharmacy practice. Junior minorities can see them in those high level positions. They can look up to them. They can get mentorship from them. And um, so it, it means we have to uh, create space and um, mentor more minorities into clinical pharmacy. For sure. I think, you know, the general theme that, you know, as we all introduced ourselves was we really appreciated mentorship as we came through, allowing or having those people that advocated for us to get to where we are now. And, you know, I think we're all here today because we want to see that and be able to do that for, for others. As sort of 
you know, an underrepresented minority myself and going through residency training, you know, that's, you know, essentially what I looked for, you know, when I was looking for a residency, I was looking for someone that is going to, you know, or a place that would advocate for me to get me to where I want to go and where I want to be. But at the same time, you know, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard to find, especially in, a, in an interview. So what do you guys think underrepresented minority candidates should be looking for in programs and how can we sort of differentiate or, you know, provide tips to ascertain which programs are really going to support a minority applicant through those things? Um, I think for me, I agree with you, Judah. That was a really big point for me when I was looking for residency programs and I went to Howard for undergrad, so it's a historically Black college. And when I went to pharmacy school, it was not that. So my experience, it was at a white institution, so it was not an HBCU experience by, by any means. And uh, when it came time for me to go to residency, I thought about all the trauma that I had experienced when I was in that majority white experience. I thought about um, the segregation of the pharmacy program. I thought about the exclusion. I thought about um, how that impacted how I viewed myself and my success. And I knew for me to excel, that going to an institution where I felt like people looked like me, where I felt like people loved me, people supported me, people cared about me, was going to be essential to the success that I would have as a clinical pharmacist. And I will be honest in saying that um, even in my interview that I had with Howard, it was a different experience than what I had with other institutions because they understood that there wasn't a lot of people that looked like us in clinical pharmacy and it felt like home. It felt, um, it felt very safe. And I think that as I continue to look for experiences, I look for, I look for that. I look for places that felt like home. I look for places that, like you stated, it is hard. Um, at the end of the day, Black, um, Latino, Latinx, Native American, minoritized individuals are in the minority, you know, of pharmacy. So they don't they don't exist in excess. But what does exist is humanity. What does exist is people that have diverse and inclusive ideals. And I looked for that when I went into my interviews. And it was one thing uh, when I went into my interview with Dr. Ryback was that I didn't feel like a number. I didn't feel like he was meeting a metric when we were interviewing. I felt like he exclusively, you know, was interested in what it is that I could bring to the fellowship program. And um, I remember when he called me to offer me the uh, fellowship, he said, you know what, we really liked you here. Like, um, and he he had actually filled this, the role that I was interviewing for. <laughs> but another um, opportunity opened up, which ended up changing my life. But I remember him saying, I felt like you would be teachable. We felt like you would be a really good addition to our fellowship program. And it didn't feel like it was a checklist. It felt like he was really invested in doing whatever it is that he could do to make me the clinician that I could be. And I think that that's something that you want to you want to feel when you go into a program. You don't want to feel like, you know, a lot of times you may be the first. Um, and even in that fellowship program, I was the first. I was the only and a lot of times that may be the case, but you want to make sure that wherever it is that you go, they're going to be dedicated to ensuring um, your success, to ensuring that you're cared for and that they genuinely want to have you there. Not a matter of they have to have you there. Yeah, I'll throw something out there because I, I remember for me, my career changed when I found someone who looked like me for the first time. And I uh, met Derek Clay, who's my mentor at Spartanburg. And I really felt lost going my P4 year and because I just felt that I didn't fit in. Um, I was an inner city kid. I didn't talk the same way. 
I didn't enjoy the certain things. I didn't listen to the same music. So I never really felt that the route that everyone was going was for me because I just couldn't physically like see myself in those positions. And I spent one hour with one of my mentors and for the first time I was like, he's an emergency medicine pharmacist and he looks like me and he talks like me and he's able to understand the things that, you know, central to my core being and I asked him, I said, where did you train? And he, was, he said, Grady. And that was like opened my eyes to the fact that other places can be that way. And even when I, when I did PPS, and I think PPS is very challenging because you get a small glimpse of people. So when I met John Packer, who's someone who I talk to almost every day, I didn't get the initial vibe like that I was going to fit in at Grady. And I, I was just thinking, I was like, man, I've been really wanting to go to this place for two years and I get to PPS and I just didn't feel like it was going to be, you know, for me. And when I went on my interview, what really stood out to me is the fact that he seemed to be like so caring. And I just never like never thought that someone who, you know, an older white male can relate to me or give me experience or really care about me. And that was something that's unique overall, because I was like, wow, I can I can feel it. I can feel this guy actually, he's like, I, if you want to see anything, if you want to go anywhere, if you want something, like, just let me know. Cause I really want you to get the whole grasp of what Grady is and how it can help you. He's like, I really, really think you enjoyed here. And he said that and like five minutes later, one of the other pharmacists named Chantrell walked by and I was like, what's her name? Like Chantrell Johnson. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> it, it, it gives me an opportunity to be around people who I felt at the time one who didn't let me and care for me, then someone who I just thought just simply by name made me feel like, okay, I, I, I may can do it. And that experience was phenomenal. And I think now just to wrap this up, it's so challenging for candidates right now because of the COVID era and the virtual interviews. All of these things are challenging to get a sense of who people are and what to expect. So a lot of what we're doing now is basing it off of relationships with other people. And that's why I think this group and groups like this out there are so important because we are the portal to giving opportunities to people to know because every student who is a, you know, unrepresented minority asks me, do they have people like me there? And I know exactly what they're talking about. I have to reach out to find those, but I think it's just a challenge right now. And I think this podcast and this, this group, and I think social media is a phenomenal place for people to get just to see what there's like out there because one hour with someone who looks like you or who you think resonates with you or who cares for you as a person can change your entire career. For sure. I think that, you know, everyone is, like you said, is really trying to look for someone that looks like them. And I think in my experience, you know, that's what drew me to my residency training programs, you know, on um, my interview with the program that I matched with, so I, I did my training at Thomas Jefferson. Um, there were two black females on the, in, on the interview panel and, you know, the fact that, you know, they decided to take their small eight hour snippet of time with me and showcase that part of it made me feel much more comfortable, much more at home and shows that, you know, they're promoting that. Um, so I couldn't agree more. So from the program perspective, though, um, how do you think that programs and preceptors can empathize with, with these underrepresented minority candidates? I'd be super interested to hear your thoughts, uh, Carolyn or Kevin or Jason. Yeah, I can start. I think, you know, Jimmy, um, when you were describing the, the residency director at your site who, you know, you met, I think we all strive to be that person, right? Like I would love nothing more than to make it clear to all candidates that 
you know, I want to support you. Like I want to know what your goals are and, and get you there. Um, but sometimes I think, you know, if you're not like a touchy feely person as an RPD or, you know, you just, that's just not your style. Like maybe there are also some like structural things that you could do to kind of uh, make sure that applicants all feel as though it's an equitable process. And I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on and thought about a lot over the past couple of years is just transparency in the application process. And I think in the past, it was sort of like very taboo to say as a program, like, this is what we look for. But really, I mean, that's important, right? I mean, if you're, as a program, if you look for certain qualities in, in applicants, then you probably should say that because it will help applicants to know if this is going to be the kind of place that matches with what they are also looking for. So, you know, for example, um, if your program decides as a group that, you know, you're going to score um, in screening, in application screening, if you're going to score people that have three clinical letters of rec, you know, higher than other letters of rec, I mean, just say that, right? I mean, just say you require three clinical letters of rec because otherwise it's like an applicant might end up, you know, paying the money to apply to your program only to sort of be immediately screened out um, in your first round screening without even you having a chance to get to know them. Now, of course, application screening is this whole other thing. And I mean, Jason and <laughs> definitely I'm sure has all their thoughts on this too. And it's not a perfect process at all. Um, I know every year that we miss out on getting to actually meet with very qualified candidates. Um, it's just the numbers part. I mean, but at least if you can put out there, you know, what your requirements are and what it is that your program really looks for, I think that takes a pretty important step towards making it a little bit more of an equitable process. For sure. Um, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think a big key there is just really truly being genuine. And from the program director and preceptor side is just being open to candidates and letting them know truly what you're looking for, truly what your expectations are for the residency and what your goals for that resident are. Um, and just showing how you can you know, work with them and help guide them. So for candidates to you know, try to find that truly genuine interaction, that genuine answers to questions and not just reading from a script or, you know, stating the diversity and equity mission and statement, but truly what can they do to help achieve those goals and really push that envelope? Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the things I'll add is, um, you know, I always try to think about like, what are the the challenging points to, to supporting residents in getting from student to, to resident um, as an RPD? And, and what are the ways that I can reduce structural barriers to getting individuals into my program? Um, I, I very much agree with everyone. Like, you should be a human and, and connect with the, the individuals that are on the other side uh, as candidates from an RPD perspective. But I, I also think there's structural things that we can do. You know, uh, Caroline was very clear about, um, you know, trying to limit bias and how we're screening and how we're interviewing. And um, I think, you know, there's some uh, great presentations at, at Midyear by Brent Reed. Uh, if you if you had a chance to watch it about using objective criteria to make interview based uh, evaluations, and and I think that that's a great resource to um, start with. But when I think about structural things, uh, I also think about like what are ways to reduce costs uh, and impacts to individuals transitioning from student to resident. Farm grad wishlist is a great example of that. But I think 
um, finding an organization that maybe gives you a licensure bonus when you start or gives you a food stipend or, um, you know, finds a way to support you in making that transition, you know, is another way to, to not just show like compassion as a person, but also put fiscal resources behind their commitment to help improving, you know, underrepresented minority participation in their residency program. And I think part of that is acknowledging that like while we're trying to do this in the pharmacy bubble, the outside world is still making it hard for minorities to even enter school, to enter college, to get into a residency program because, you know, they're socioeconomically disadvantaged. Not all the time, but uh, it's a, a way to um, use your fiscal resources in an institution to support that process as well. Yeah, um, I think those are all important and excellent points. And there's a lot of you know, structural barriers, like you mentioned, that are just, pre you know, preventing um, sort of the advancement and sort of, you know, the, the, the desires that we really want in order to, you know, diversify pharmacy and diversify medicine. I think another common theme was, you know, finding someone that looked like you or finding, you know, getting that right feel and using transparency to portray that feel. Um, but looking back and thinking back, um, how do you think that as a student, as, an, as a minoritized student, how do you seek that feel? How do you get that feel? What kinds of questions do you ask in order to determine if someone's going to be caring or going to support you, you know, if it be a 60-minute interview or an eight-hour interview for residency? Yeah, I think we're, we're looking at this on, on both ends. We're, of course, training our residents to look for these things. And for us, we're asking certain questions to want to incorporate diverse thinking candidates part of our program. So I think one of the things you can ask is, especially in today's world, we can ask about how they've incorporated DEI as part of their pharmacy department. I think in asking these questions right now, I think more so than ever, I believe that three, four years ago, these questions would have not favored well for candidates to be, to be frank. But I think with the current climate and, and how things are today, I think asking what are the actionable items that they've been working on for DEI? The, the last meeting, what was done? Because I think many people are having these meetings now. So I think a candidate asking, you know, what all their the action items or the things that has been talked about as far as incorporated into the program would help out. And it just gives you a sense. And then you can start what I, I encourage candidates to do if they are aware of a process at another center or if they're aware of a process at their current facility, they should ask their current preceptors and their current faculty members at their school about these things. Then they can start connecting dots. So if a candidate asks me that and I tell them what we're doing, you would say, oh, we're also involved in something similar in, in that fashion. Then you start having a conversation uh, the person who's interviewing them kind of relaxes themselves for a second because it becomes a conversation more so than questioning of something that really is an uncomfortable scenario for uh, the majority, you know, faculty members. So I think for it's something that if they're working on it, it's great. But I think right now is the perfect time to ask about what are the different things we're doing in a DEI space. I agree uh, with Jimmy for sure. I actually just had this conversation with um, soon-to-be PharmD, Deja Davis, so um, and, and one of Jimmy's students. But uh, when her and I first met, uh, one question that she asked me was, how do I express the need or how, how do I deal with being the first or the only and expressing uh, 
or wanting to know the institution's commitment to diversity. She asked me like, how do I ask this question? And I had to really take a step back because I mean, I've been promoting like the necessity of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I never thought about the fact that, yeah, like students do need to ask this, you know, like that is like something important to ask. But as Jimmy said, when we think back to, when I think back to when I was applying or when you all may think back to when you were applying or, you know, Jimmy and Judah, that may have been a harder question to say, you know, as this black person, I want to know, what are you all doing for the people that look like me? It would have been like, well, what, what, what should we be doing? You know, what do you, what do you mean? What are we doing? So uh, I think that, you know, that we're in this very unique place um, that I, that I hope, you know, continues to have this upward mobility but we're in this place where you can ask that question and you are validated and it's and it's become a safer space to really ask that question, but to discern, you know, to read between those lines and navigate um, that that gray space as to what it is that the institution is doing and to have the expectation of tangible things because we have seen things be done tangibly to uh, we've seen, you know, how Jason has worked to increase the diversity that he has in his program. We've seen how Caroline and Kevin have been a part of the farm grad wish so you can deduce that they are dedicated to amplifying and sponsoring minoritized students. So I think those are things that you look for. When you look into those residency program preceptors, you look you look into what it is that they have on their faculty profiles and you look for things that are diverse, that are inclusive. Um, you can inquire, you can bring up, hey, you know, I know the farm grad wish list exists. Do you by any chance, are you familiar with it? You know, oh, have you donated to the farm grad wish list? I think, I think that they're, are very tangible, very easy things to ask at this point in time in terms of how, how committed these institutions are to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I think also having that transparent conversation of, hey, you know, I saw, this was a conversation I had with Deja. It was, you know, she said, I saw they've never had a black resident before. I'll be the first one there. That's typically the case for a lot of things when you think about people with minoritized backgrounds going somewhere to train. She um, said to me, you know, it's one thing for me to get the residency. It's another thing for them to want me there for the institution as a whole to want me there, you know, because I have to interact with with providers and other clinicians. It's not just the pharmacy department. So it's okay to ask that question. You know, what is the commitment of the institution as a whole to diversity? equity and inclusion. And what are you all going to do to make me feel safe? I love, Jam, that you mentioned tangible things, because I, I think we've all seen kind of the creation of DEI task force left and right that don't necessarily produce a lot of tangible change. But but to really look for that specific thing that you can put your finger on that's shown some sort of change um, that, that really takes that DEI component and takes it to the next level. Like, yes, it is okay to start with education and it's okay to start with, um, you know, having these conversations and, and really getting the pulse of your institution, but you need to take the next step and the step after that and the step after that. That was, that was really powerful and struck me uh, was the tangible piece. Thanks, Jim. Yes, I think it's truly all about action. Um, it's all about seeing those things done. Um, that really makes people feel safe and comfortable. And, you know, 
mentioned earlier that, you know, it's difficult in this climate, you know, especially when a lot of programs are not interviewing on site and you might not actually be able to see those things, but doing your research and trying to as, as much as you can um, to figure out what, what these programs are doing and what they offer, I think is going to be super important. Moreover than that, I think social media, I think it's going to play a big factor. Um, like, like I said, you know, it's more readily available than not to be able to look up your post preceptors, see what they're talking about, <laughs> see what kinds of things that they say, um, you know, when they're not, when they don't have their RPD hat on. Um, I think that that really is truly telling um, and really can make someone feel safe or, you know, expose something to them that they might otherwise not have known. I will say we also live in the age of social media and the way that programs will look at your social media is a way that you can also look through the program social media. You look at the likes, you look at what it is that they retweet. And um, the same, I always tell students the exact same way that you interview a program is the exact same way or that a program interviews you is the exact same way that you should be interviewing that program. Because it is one thing for you to like them, but it is another thing uh, for, for them to like you, but another thing for you to like them and to want to spend a year of your time that is honestly like I'm still in therapy recovering from experiences that I had in pharmacy school and um, throughout my training experiences. So I I mean, these things will stick with you and they're a part of your uh, the foundational um, aspects of your learning and you becoming a, a clinician, a practitioner. So um, don't vote on that. Use all of these things to your advantage when you're selecting these programs. And we kind of mentioned earlier, too, that, you know, I think that it's easy um, for applicants to go through and see some of these things done within a pharmacy department. But, you know, those aren't the only people that they'll be interacting with like, when they come on or if they you know, decide to pursue a residency with your institution. Um, so how do you think from a program perspective that, you know, residency programs can work with their institutions or showcase other efforts done by other departments within their institution that generally show and support DEI efforts? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that we did at MUSC is that we our, our term is DEIB, so B for belonging. And I think one of the, the ways that we want to look at this is from a structural standpoint, because unfortunately, a lot of this is structurally built bias in, in, in itself. So it's going backwards and seeing how can we reverse engineer this. So we started asking what type of questions are we asking? And is that are those questions inclusive? Are certain people going to have experiences solely due to resources that allow them to wow you, so to say? Because it's usually you're going to get a, ask a question and you're going to hear very similar ones. But the people who are wowing you, can they do that because they was able to afford the three, four thousand dollar mission trip? Because can they tell you these things because they're they're able to do certain things solely based out of resources? So we started to look out and I think the University of California actually, I think it's I think it's University of California, San Francisco. They had a document of questions that they asked that are looking solely at from a DEI standpoint of an inclusiveness. And we started making it so that that's part of our process. And it's, it's one thing to to look at that. And I think we start asking those questions. People who are from certain backgrounds, they are allowed to have the same opportunity to shine as someone else now. So I think the questions that we can ask and really just understanding, like like we said before, DEI or DEIB, whatever your term is, that's that's one thing, because um, unfortunately, it's I would like to say it's part of the C-suite now. It's part of the C-suite. So that means that everyone's going to have to do it. Everyone's going to have to do some 
you know, modules and things of that nature, just for they can, it's a, it's a, it's a new checkbox. But what are people doing outside of that checkbox? And can everyone speak to that? So at our, at our shop, we have, if we, we meet with everyone, we tell them what we're doing so that if a resident gets asked a certain question, they know what we're doing or they know to forward those questions to one of us because we're trying to make sure that we're, at, we're asking the questions and putting them in environments that's going to be great. And I'm going to be honest, again, I'm not an expert. I'm not someone, but we're just trying to make sure that one, people who look like everyone is involved in the interview process, the questions that are being asked are there, and that we find ways to be very transparent about the fact that we, we don't have a significant number of people, but this is one of the ways we're trying to do that. So I think just making sure people are, are at the interview table, asking the questions, the questions that are being asked are equitable, and that we are allowing people to really uh, be themselves and shine in different, different and unique ways. Yeah, I, I truly appreciate that. I think it's all about being intentional um, about, you know, being showing your intention and truly trying to make a change that will, you know, limit those biases and sort of try and make this an equitable playing field. Additionally, do you think that, you know, health systems in general can do more to support that? Can, you know, like, I, I feel like at times there are some, there, like you mentioned, there's a C-suite and sometimes it can be perceived as a performative act, but what can be done more? Um, and what can be, what can we, how can we turn that performance into actual intentional things? I think that, um, and I, I'll be, I'll keep it brief, but I think one thing that we can do is in, being intentional is important, but making things a priority is even more important. I think, you know, what is it? The road to, to, uh, to, to hell is paved with good intentions. And I always mess up analogies. I think that's something that we can think of. I mean, like I said, the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions, but when you make things a priority, um, you are more intentional about about committing to those efforts. So what does that look like in the institution? What that looks like creating opportunities for people to sit at these tables, like Jimmy said, it looks like um, at Loma Linda, actually, our C, the new COO that was appointed is a black man. So now that black man, that's our chief of operations, now has a seat at that table that creates opportunity. Honestly, it creates, first and foremost, it creates representation, but then it also creates opportunities for other individuals to end up in um, similar positions or to end up within pla end up within placements in the institution, because we now have someone that's that's in that C suite at that table that looks like us. So I think that's important. Be um, prioritize making minoritized individuals a part of those decision making, um, a part of those decision making bodies. When we think about different organizations and uh, pharmacy, when we think about ASHP, um, Dr. Paul Walker is now the president of ASHP, the first Black president, to my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, that they've had at least in uh, most recent history. So now he's there and that's representation, but he's also created opportunities. I was able to talk with Dr. Walker myself via Zoom, and then the Farm Grad Wishlist has been able to communicate with ASHP in a way in which we likely would not have been able to, or to be a part of, to become a part of their radar because we have someone that looks like us sitting at that front end of that table. So that's the importance, but ASHP made it a priority 
So they created their task force, but they say, hey, we got this task force. We're also going to make it a priority to pave and highlight this trajectory for, for the progression to that front seat. And now we have, you know, Dr. Walker that's here that's created this representation, but essentially that's also created this opportunity for efforts that will correlate to our DEI task force and what it is that we wanted them to do. So I think prioritizing what it is that we say will also translate to what it is that we need to see. Very, very true. And then taking a step back, you know, all of these things are, are you know, essential in, in what we strive to do and strive to be. Um, but for programs, you know, that have been either a majority white or for, for decades or haven't, you know, had a lot of exposure um, to these kinds of things, how do you advise about implementing these efforts? Um, what pieces of advice do you have to go through the process? I think the first thing is kind of like what I mentioned earlier, looking through your screening criteria to see what biases you have. And, and also like what Jimmy was talking about with the interview questions, you know, are your interview questions going to lead to bias? So that's a, that's a first step that um, I think most RPDs have own that process, right? Like there are a lot of things that you can't control at your institution. You may not be on the DEI task force, you might not know all of the things that, you know, are, are happening over your head at a large institution, but you can control, you know, your own process in the, the residency screening. So I think that's a place to start. Um, I think just, you know, kind of being humble about it and recognizing that like, yeah, okay, this is something we haven't really done before. And let's start, let's just start somewhere. Let's not continue to like worry about how to start, um, but let's just like take a step. And if the step does not end up, you know, leading to what it is that you want as your goal and your outcome, well then like reflect on that, meet with others, try to brainstorm what are some other ways that you can improve um, and try to implement that next. I think it's just, it's a stepwise process. And I mean, we're doing this process at my institution, you know, we're not perfect for sure. Um, there's been a lot of movement in terms of making the, the screening and interview process more equitable, but I, I do know that we have a lot of room to go still. So that's, you know, something that we're continuing to look at. We have a recruitment working group. And so, you know, we, we meet and try to discuss like, how are we going to make this better each year and, and try to improve. Thanks, Caroline. I'll, um, as an RPD, I'll, I'll piggyback off that. And um, I'll add like once you do start to make movement and, and if you do start to see some diversity in your program, you know, in, engage people from minoritized backgrounds to get their opinion and solicit their opinion, but don't put all the work on them. I think um, it's a lot of times particularly like white majority groups, when they get together, they get nervous about making a decision about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and spend a lot of time wringing their hands around how do we take that first step? And then when you do finally get someone with an opinion, you tend to put all the work on them. And so um, the, the key here is like not to like defer just to one person on everything and give them all the responsibility, but rather be a true ally and you know, you utilize their opinion, but you have to do a lot of the work um, and your group has to do a lot of the work. And so it's something that you'll probably have to think about at every step of the process, making sure that you're appropriately disseminating, disseminating that work and um, really supporting uh, your initiative across uh, a span of years. I know like we all want a solution 
right now. And I think there's a lot that we can do right now, but it's, you know, changing structure takes a long time. And so if you fail, you got to keep going just because you're recruited an entire class that, that doesn't have any minoritized individuals doesn't mean that you failed and you need to give up. It's a, a sign that, that you need to double down and, and really start to think about how can I um, affect more change and uh, think about your next steps. One more thing to add, um, kind of tagging along with what Jason said earlier about the tangible outcomes or tangible actions that can be done is, you know, implementing some of those resources and, um, you know, making available food stipends or, you know, different help, but also looking at the mental health for candidates and, you know, really supporting that mental health and having resources available um, to help candidates along and, um, you know, residency is hard. It's going to be stressful and we need to be there, you know, as programs, it's as much about our patient care as well as resident health. And also having those hard conversations, you know, opening the door and letting candidates know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work to improve our diversity efforts and really trying to work to make this a more equitable workplace. How are we doing? Like, you know, what can be done better and what can make this a better fit? Um, you know, expressing that vulnerability to let candidates know and residents know that improvements are being made and that, you know, it's a process and that you're continuing to work on that process. Very, very true. So any final thoughts from the group? What do we want to see done and what do we you know, want, to, want, want to happen? I'll say um, advocacy for lower conference costs. But um, for recruitment, I will say that um, as, you know, a minoritized student, I did not go to mid-year because I just could not afford going. And um, I found um, other ways around it, which looked like me emailing programs and letting them know I wouldn't be at mid-year and then, you know, asking them the questions that I would ask. But, you know, didn't get half the interviews, but whatever. But I think definitely advocating for um, a reduction in uh, conference costs, but then also advocating for uh, for programs to continue to have these virtual platforms that have been created during this uh, pandemic time that will allow for more students, especially more diverse students, to likely be able to express their interest and be contenders for these programs. So that, and then as everyone said, the stipends. So um, I think that my last bit of... Um, just hope for the future is to continue to push that lens of what we can do to open up our minds to being more equitable to everyone else. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. I remember going to mid-year and I only had uh, 45 bucks for the week and I went to Jack in the Box tacos. I ate that Jack in the Box every single day, every meal. I didn't hang out, didn't do anything solely due to the fact that I had 45 bucks in Las Vegas which is insane. So I think, you know, making sure we have costs that are, you know, realistic for, for, for people who have, you know, you know, challenging backgrounds. And I think my major thing is just continuing to have this talk across multiple platforms. And I think getting everyone else engaged. And I think the beauty of, of this panel and, and, and what you guys are doing is the fact that you have a variety of people from different places and different backgrounds that want to promote the same thing. And I think if we can continue to have these conversations with a larger net of people, I think that people in the majority won't feel attacked. I think that's the one thing that is a, a challenge. If someone feels attacked, they won't act. And that's really what it's going to come down to. And we can find realistic, tangible ways to be able to open the door. And if it's just them changing some questions, I think people will do that. 
I think if it's providing different platforms that are, you know, allowing a wider net of people to apply and be be competitive, I think people can do that. So I think our conversations need to be about tangible actions that everyone can do. And I think that people who are educated need to figure out these different platforms, test them, study them, publish them, and continue to have these conversations. I'm glad you mentioned the publish and study, Jimmy. That's a great point. We have, unfortunately, too, too little data on a lot of this. Well, with that, I, I thank everyone here for, for joining in. Um, it was such an insightful and riveting conversation and definitely a much-needed conversation. Like Jimmy mentioned, we need to continue having these conversations, pushing them out, getting exposure, not only having the conversation easier to do, but also just, you know, continuing to create that exposure so that um, intentional changes can happen. So I thank you all for participating and, and sharing your thoughts and, um, and feelings. It's, I think, definitely needed. And special thank you again to Dr. Pruitt for joining the podcast to support the movement and mission to diversify pharmacy. If you'd like to support, please visit our website at farmgradwishlist.org or other social media such as Twitter at farmgradwishlist or Instagram for current GoFundMes, blogs, and sponsored wishlists. Check out our other podcasts and we look forward to showcasing more of the effort in the movement. So stay tuned.